So we're talking about the heart of worship. How do you like that title? Altered at the altar. Huh? Yeah, a little play on words there, right? So uh, we've talked about uh, how that worship is both public and private. It starts on the inside, right? That our worship of God isn't just something we do on the outside. It starts on the inside and flows outward. And so it's got to be personal and it needs to be happening every day. But it also, in the scripture, we see that there are all these, even in the Old Testament, God desired his people to come together to worship. So it's also public. That what happens when we're together, see, there are certain things God is going to do in your life as you worship him in your private daily life. There other things that God's going to do in and through your life as you come together with brothers and sisters because we're all part of a body right the body of Christ and that means we need to come together not any one of us has all the spiritual gifts and callings and abilities we need each other and a lot of what God's going to do in my life he's going to use you and so if I try to cancel you out and stay away from you I'm going to miss something that God wants to do in my life right amen so but it's easy to get along with God it's tough to get along with some of you though but see that's where we grow that's why what he wants to do in our life is to help us in this, in our relationships. Uh, so we talked about all the different things that are involved as we worship him. <clears throat> that our worship is really bowing before him and just humbling ourselves, opening up ourselves before God, before who he is. And someone, Joy, just, it just had a light bulb moment a week or two ago. Since you were talking about that, it's not what God has done, it's who he is. We worship him because of who he is. And he said, I never thought about that before. And I've been out of church for a long time, but said just, just thinking about who he is and realizing that if this is true and he is God, I must worship him. That's it. That's it. But involved in that is singing and praising God and giving thanks to God. Uh, involved in that is even as we give, uh, even as we are equipped by the word, right? We're worshiping. And we're going to find out even as we serve one, an- one another. We're, we're not just blessing one another and helping one another. We're worshiping God. Everything flows out of worship. Uh, so this is the thing. To worship means to be totally, what is it? and it's just so hard to encapsulate everything that it involves, but it means to be, this is something I, I came up with years ago uh, that really helped me. It means to be totally consumed and occupied with the person, presence, and power of God. To be totally consumed, to be overwhelmed, overflowing, totally occupied with who he is, his person, presence, and power. True worship, remember, isn't about what we get out of it. True worship is directed toward God. See, true worship is, has God as its focus. So a lot of times, you know, we think about, um, you know, well, I shouldn't get anything out of this. I think the bigger question sometimes is... When I leave here, what did God get out of me? Did God receive honor and reverence and praise and thanksgiving, worship? Did God receive any of that from my heart today? And I can't look at anybody and you can't look at me and tell whether that's really true. Because you can act like it on the outside, but it's got to come from the inside, right? 
But it just seems like with me, and I know we're all different personalities and styles and things, but when I got something on the inside, I can't, I don't do a very good job of keeping it in. It's got to come out, right? It's going to come out. And, and so that's the thing. I want it to. I want it and, and be together with brothers and sisters and just let that worship come out and let it flow. Um, but let me just say this, though. Um, to say that there's nothing that you get out of it would be a misrepresentation. So worship is about God. God is the focus. But you can't worship God without it dramatically affecting your life. That's just the way it happens, okay? It's going, to, it's going to change you. It's going to do amazing things in your life about the difference. It's got powerful effects on you. And just think about the difference that would be in our life if we were truly worshiping God when we come together instead of just going through this little church service thing that we can check off the list of things that we should do that we did do. I endured that sermon like, Lord, that's got to count for something. You know, I just sat through it, right? But that's not the point. We want God's word to work in us and open up our hearts so you can be here today and not worship at all. And God wants worship to become a way of life. It is, it is part of us that we want to worship God. It's not just an hour or an hour and a half extravaganza on Sunday morning, okay? Yeah, you know, we just kind of come together and do our thing. But it's something real that's happening in us. And it's kind of hard, it's kind of hard to experience worship here when we're worshiping God if we've not thought much about God all week. So when it really gets powerful is when we're doing it right. We're worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. And we're worshiping Him in our daily life, in our personal life. And then we bring it together when we come here. And I like it. I like it when we're hungry for God. And it's a privilege. Philip, brother, it's a privilege to pray with you this morning. And we just want anytime God's moving you and you want to pray and you want to just, you just ought to have that freedom. You know? And it's just... And, and I can tell you about this man that God has brought him so far, but you're hungry for God. You don't want the fire to go out. You just keep feeding the fire. One of the reasons why a lot of our fires are going out is because we're not feeding the fire. We want someone else to feed it, but we've not learned how to get in the Word and worship in spirit and truth and let God feed the fire that He started in our life. We just, you know, there's no autopilot, you know, when it comes to this. So remember. Jesus said that the Father is seeking such. People who want to worship in spirit and truth, that he's seeking such. God desires this. And because he's God, this isn't selfish on his part. If he is who he says he is, and he is, amen? Amen. (laughs) Then he deserves all praise, all worship. There is none higher. That's what we're talking about here. Um, And I've talked to people even recently that, you know... um, Used to, it was around here that pretty much anyone you talked to uh, could not, you know, they, they, they'd been to church, uh, even if their family didn't go. They'd been, they kind of knew, kind of knew basic stuff. But now there are a lot of people that, that don't know. They, they've, never, they've never been to church except for maybe a funeral or a wedding. Uh, they don't know anything about it. They don't know anything about, they have a lot of uh, thoughts and ideas. And it takes a while to work through. But yet I believe there's something there's somebody. And as they get in and they begin to get confidence in the Word of God and realize that literarily, historically, in every way that this book is amazing and unique and there's nothing like it, and they begin to see. But you know what? A lot of times people don't know if they can believe this book. They don't know if they can believe about God. I'm talking about this heathen culture we live in in the United States now. 
We don't need to just expect. I mean, the wheels are coming off, folks. Have you noticed? It's crazy stuff. And, and, we're, and, and I don't know about you, but I'm insulted. I'm offended by things that I, although everybody's offended now. I know, I get it. But what I'm saying is, is that there's stuff out, you know. Uh, but here's the deal. Curtis, can I quote you? Yeah, you can expect heathens to act like heathens, right? I mean, you know, isn't that true? I mean, I don't know what we're expecting here. And, you, you know, you can't really, you can't legislate people into a relationship with God. I know that. But the problem is, is that people like us who know the Lord are not being salt and light. You know, because, see, we ought to be attracted to the light. And if we're sharing good news, there's some bad news that goes with it. Bad news about our being sinners, and, but there's good news about His grace and His salvation. See, good news is exciting to me. And we haven't modeled that. And so, see, one thing is we worship God in our daily life and, and we're out there. People are going to see that. They're going to notice that. And they don't know if they can believe this book. They don't know about God. They don't know about all these churches. But they know you. They know whether you're for real or not. They know you have struggles. They know you have failures, but you don't fake them out on it. You admit it. They see you go through some stuff, okay? And they get to see real life. And they get to see how the gospel, how God's truth and your relationship with the Lord brings you through that stuff. You don't have to act like you're all perfect because most everybody around got a pretty good idea you're not, okay? And so then, what is it? That makes you tick. And they begin to notice that it's your relationship with the Lord. And then, because you find God's truth in His Word. Well, they'd never really thought about that, but now they're, they're halfway ready to look in that Word and see for themselves. And so this is one way, just by your life, and just by your life of worshiping the Lord, helps draw people to God's truth, which brings them to Him and their own relationship with the Lord. It's powerful how God wants to do this. Anyway, so what happens now? When I talk about being altered at the altar, yeah, um, that our lives are altered. In other words, worship is about God, and um, sometimes we need to be more mindful about what God gets out of us coming together than just what I get out of it, okay? Uh, what did I put into it? Well, sometimes we put absolutely nothing into it, you know? So if you're putting absolutely nothing into it, preparing your heart and getting in the Word and listening to God, it's no surprise you get nothing out of it, okay? But, um, but even though it's about God as its focus, yet we're the ones that's going to be altered. We're going to be changed, because of that coming together to worship him, and as we worship him every day, we're going to be changed. I'm going to tell you one of the first things that's going to happen. One of the first things that happened, you ready to get into some scripture? All right. Psalm 22.3 says, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. And at this time in the Old Testament, that's his people. So he's talking about you are enthroned, you could say, in the praises of your people. You inhabit could be another translation, the praises of your people. One thing that happens as we worship God is that it enthrones God over our life. As we are worshiping him, he is Lord. Something's happening inside me as I worship him and my relationship with him. It becomes deeper, more personal, more intimate with God as I bow before him. And I don't just want him as my savior, but I desire him as the Lord of my life. Yeah, a lot of us want him to save us. Huh? And he is that. He's Savior. Amen? We want him to save us from our sins. We want us to save us from hellfire. 
We want him to save us from consequences of something that we know we caused. He not only wants to be your savior, but it doesn't come separately. He must also be your Lord. He's Lord. We bow before him. We worship him. He is the Lord, the boss over our lives. It's amazing how we want him to, we'll talk about him being Savior and Lord, but we still want to be boss. I'm sorry, Lordship doesn't work that way. huh? Do you remember our old buddy that kind of wandered in here years ago, Gail Fick? If you were here then, you couldn't forget Gail. Do you remember when Gail would pray what he would always say? He would always say, Lord, I pray that you would help me to desire you as much for as Lord as I do desiring you as Savior. Because he's both, right? Uh, and so a lot of times that's, that's all we want. We just want God, we just want fire insurance, I guess, right? But here's the thing. As we make him Lord, he's in, as we worship him, he is enthroned over our life as God. He inhabits our praise. He is enthroned in it. And here's the thing. I want you to see this as well as hear it. That it is impossible to enthrone God as Lord over your life and deeply worship him without it dramatically changing your life. Another way of saying that is it will dramatically affect your life. If it's not, then you got to wonder if the worship is real. Or if we're just playing games, playing church games, or something like that. And that goes on a lot. In fact, that's what will just happen if we're not focused, okay? Um, One of the first blessings is that deepening relationship with him that is going to happen. Um, I like the way A.W. Tozer, who wrote many years ago, said it. I put this quote, I, I don't know if I put it in your notes, but here it is. We are called to, here's what we're called to as followers of Christ. As Christians, we're called to a, an everlasting, that means it never ends, an everlasting preoccupation with God. Huh? Is that us? Oh, we pretty much forget about him until we come back here and Are you preoccupied with him and who he is? Because he's the one that gives you life. He's the one that gives you the next beat of the heart. He's the one that gives you the next breath. We ought to be as we're really worshiping him. Um, It's more than just that weekly, you know. Hey, are you listening? It's more than just that weekly check-in. Like I need to check-in. You know, we get our checked-in with God this week, okay? I'm checking in. You know, like you do on those apps, you check in. Right, okay. Right, I want to check in with Jesus here. Right, it's got to be more than that. Okay, it's you let Him check in, and not let Him check out. Amen. So that's what it is all about. And so maybe, maybe, if we're not feeling close to the Lord, maybe if we're not growing in His Word, this is the reason. This is part of the reason why we're not truly open up our heart to him, bowing before him and worship him. Maybe if you're not getting much out of this, maybe, maybe, I'm just saying, maybe you're here in body, but you're not here in spirit. Could be, could be. And you're not, you're just, you're just going to be miserable the whole time, you know, so, or distracted, whatever. All right, so this is it. This is it. And as we're altered, our lives are altered. I'm using a play on words for that word, the altar, right? So you know what an altar is? It's a place where God was worshipped. Now let me explain what the altar is, okay? So I'm talking about worshipping at his altar. When you look in the Bible, you're going to find out that even the Old Testament saints, you go back into the Old Testament, you're going to find out that even the Old Testament saints understood this. 
And, and uh, it is amazing. Even though they didn't have the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and even though that they had to go through this rigorous stuff with the law that, that God had given, and, and, and they didn't have the full word of God, Jesus had not come and died on the cross. The Holy Spirit had not been poured out on everyone that's saved yet. Even though it's in those days, they understood this, that God had prescribed a temporary way that lost, sinful, imperfect human beings could approach and have fellowship with a perfect, holy, all-powerful God. Because sin separates us from God. And God created us with the ability to make a choice, a will. Because love is all about that, being able to make a choice. If God had just programmed us like the animals, that wouldn't be a love relationship, right? We're not puppets on a string, not robots. In order for there to be love and to be a choice, there had to be an alternative. Uh, and, and that happened, right? And Adam and Eve sinned, and the whole human race fell into sin. And immediately, it's like God prepared a way that lost sinful human beings could have fellowship with him. You see that even in the Word as you read through it. Because you see, the first thing Adam and Eve did when they sinned is what did they want to do when God's presence came? <coughs> Excuse me. They wanted to hide. They wanted to hide. Well, they weren't just naked physically. They were naked emotionally and in every other way. And their sin was exposed before God. The very first bloodshed that you find in the Bible wasn't when Cain killed his brother Abel. It was when God himself killed an animal and took the skin and covered their nakedness. Very symbolic. That seems to be the beginning of that of that whole word picture of the wages of sin is death. For the blood to leave the body, life's in the blood, the Bible says that means without blood you're going to die. And it's like when you see the blood drain from the body, it's like you're seeing the life drain from the body and you die. The animal died. Wages of sin is death. For you to continue to have fellowship with me, this had to be a substitute for you. This animal died. In In the Bible, death doesn't just mean like an end, like we think of it. It means separation. Because God had told them that the day that you eat of that, the day you disobey me, you will surely die. Well, they didn't die physically that day. They died spiritually. They were separated from God. Physical death is when our soul and spirit separate from our body. And then the Bible talks about one more death, and it's called eternal death. And that's when people are separated from God forever. So that's what death indicates. But he talked about wages, sin is death. Death separates. And as the animal died, it was symbolic of that blood that Jesus was going to have to shed to not just cover their nakedness, but to cover their sin. And the fact that they knew about this is evident when Cain and Abel were worshiping later on is that Abel brought the blood sacrifice and Cain brought what he wanted to bring and God didn't accept that offering. And it's obvious that Cain knew what God wanted because if you read that, God said, if you do what's right, won't you be accepted too? In other words, you're not doing what I ask you to do. And if you do it, I'll accept yours too. But he wasn't willing to do it, just like so many people today. They want to worship God, but they want to worship God their way and the way that's convenient for them and not the way God himself has prescribed. If you're going to come to a holy, perfect God and you're a sinner, you have to come in the way that he has prescribed, not just any old way you want to. Just like when God had decided that he was going to destroy the earth with the flood, that there wasn't just any old way that you could survive that. God provided one way, and it was through an ark that he instructed Noah. And Noah couldn't just build that ark any old way he wanted to. God gave him specific instructions. In other words, if you're going to be delivered, if you're going to come to God, you've got to come to God in the way that God provides and the way that God prescribes.
got to do that. They knew that. And that temporary way of those blood sacrifices in the Old Testament, it was all, it was, it was the same principle that we still have. And all of those temporary sacrifices were pointing people to, to the truth that was going to be revealed later on in Jesus Christ. They came to the same holy God that we come to. And they came with this sacrifice, which was confessing the fact that I am a sinner and I deserve separation from God. I deserve death as the animal sacrifice was made. So it was all about trusting in this thing that God had provided. That's faith, right? They came to a holy God, admitting they were sinners by faith in the way at that time God had prescribed. Are you with me on this? Okay, good. I don't want to lose anybody here. And in the way God, so they were trusting God, faith, in the way God provided, and that's grace. It was still faith in God's grace. All right? But this is a picture of what God was going to do as he laid that out there. And so in the Old Testament and in the Bible, we find that what is an altar? Since we're being, we're all talking about the altar today. An altar in the Hebrew is a place of sacrifice. We get the word altar from the Latin which means it's from the word altus, which means a high place, a place where sacrifices were made. That's what it is in the Bible. When you talk about an altar, you're talking about a raised place where sacrifices were made. That's what it was. And God had prescribed this as a means at that time for sinful people to approach him. It, but it became, are you following me on this? It became synonymous with a meeting place between God and sinners. That's me. Sinner. It indicates a place of fellowship and a place of worship, okay? So there is the literal meaning of altar. Then there's the symbolic meaning because they had to do this in order to have fellowship with God and have relationship with the Lord. So when I'm studying something like this, I like to get in the Bible and look back and see where's the first place I can find reference to it. And so the first place in the Bible that we find, this is in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. I mentioned Noah a while ago, and it's interesting that when Noah came out of the ark, it says this in Genesis 8, 20. Then Noah, after they came out, you know, all this happening, it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So he was worshiping God, and, but yet he was acknowledging that he was a sinner because even though he was righteous, he was was a perfect, and he had to come with these offerings. And by the way, the clean animals, you remember that the animals came two by two, except for the clean ones that were prescribed for sacrifice. How many, do you remember how many pairs they had of those? Seven, yes, good. Man, you guys are sharp. So anyway, so there was still plenty left over to repopulate. Okay, that's just side note, that's just side note. So in fact, before the law is given through Moses, you find... Abraham and Jacob, you find different ones building altars at various times at various places as they worship God. And in the Old Testament law, though, it was very detailed and very, just very, very, very complicated even how all these offerings had to take place. But it was all, it was all about pointing us to the ultimate offering that God was saying he would send. Because way back in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, he said that the seed of the woman's going to come, right? And we know he's talking about something miraculous there because the woman doesn't have the seed, the male has the seed, right? We know that, yeah? See, God's giving us a little birds and bees lesson right there in Genesis chapter 3, you know. Medical science finally figured this out. But the woman doesn't have the seed, so how in the world does the woman have the seed of the woman and no man? Uh, when you understand that Jesus was born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, 
then that makes perfect sense. And that this one who's coming, this deliverer, when he comes, he's going to crush the serpent's head. Serpent may bruise his heel, but he, you know, that happened on the cross. But in the process of that, he may bruise the heel, but that heel's going to crush his head. So he talked about a deliverer who would come. All of this is pointing to Christ. And so God has this, this prescribed means where they could come to God, that is to worship. And, and so the altar came to refer to that meeting place between God and sinners. And so what it was, we find out later, is all of these Old Testament sacrifices, are you still with me? They were all, they were all this. They were shadows of the cross. Old Testament altars were shadows of the cross. Of the ultimate, I should say, cross is short for the ultimate sacrifice. It was all leading up to this. We know those sacrifices, the writer of Hebrews tells us, weren't sufficient. They weren't God's final solution because they always had to be repeated. They always had to be repeated, pointing to one who would come. And when Jesus appeared, what was it John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus coming? He said, behold the what? The Lamb of God, the Lamb that God gives. The sacrifice God gives, who does what? Takes away the sins of the world. And so all those Old Testament altars and all those Old Testament sacrifices, where they're coming to God in the means and the way he prescribed and having faith in that, faith enough to actually do it, and trusting in God's goodness and God's grace. But ultimately, those sins weren't atoned for and fully covered until how the Old Testament saints get saved. Same way you do, by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because it put off God's judgment on those sins for the time being until Jesus covered those sins with his death on the cross. When you and I believe today and confess our sin, it's put back into that time where it's covered by what Jesus did on the cross. We're not really talking about time issue here. Because being God, he's eternal. He dwells outside of time. It gets deep, doesn't it? So since he dwells outside of time, at any C.S. Lewis said this, and he, I wish I had the quote, but at any time I sin, it's almost contemporary at the same moment of his death at the cross because his death on the cross, him being eternal, covers all time. Or all time is covered by him. It's not that, it's not that God dwells in all time, all time dwells with him. That's so deep, I don't even know how to say it. I don't even know how to say it. But Hebrews t- fills us in. Because Hebrews, the writer is writing, he's writing to Hebrews, Jews, who were really confused about some of these things. And he uses some of this to teach them. And this first verse, let's look at it. Hebrews 10.1. He's talking about the law and all the altars and the sacrifices. Listen to what he says. He says the law having a shadow of the good things to come. Do you see that? All of those things in the Old Testament law were like a shadow. What was casting the shadow? Christ was. So they were a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of the things. And he points out, can never with the same sacrifices that they were doing, which they offered continually year by year, he's referring to the day of atonement, make those who approach perfect. They always had to be repeated. That wasn't God's final plan. It was a shadow of what God was planning to do. So why do you settle for a shadow when the real thing shows up? That's what he's trying to point out to these people. Now, as you come into the New Testament, are you ready? We're in the New Testament now. Anytime you see the word altar, altar always refers back to Old Testament altars. Jesus talks about bringing your gift to the altar. Well, you've got to understand, that's before Jesus went to the cross. Technically, we're still under the Old Testament, Old Covenant system. But once Jesus died on the cross, what happened in the temple? 
that veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies where God's presence was supposed to be, it was ripped from top to bottom. The way was opened by the death of Christ on the cross, okay? And so now we have a new, the writer says, and living way to come to the Father. We can all boldly, because of the blood of Jesus, come to the throne of grace. The high priest once a year would take the right sacrifice and the blood of it and approach behind that veil. Now the veil is open. You've got access to God through Christ. That's what he's teaching us all about here. And so in the New Testament... When you hear the word altar, it's still referring to Old Testament altars. Or, when you get in the book of Acts, it refers to a pagan altar. Paul talks about that in Acts chapter 17 when he was in Athens. And he saw that they had all kinds of idols they were worshiping. They didn't want to leave anything out. And and the... the, the Athenians were afraid they might leave out some deity. So they actually had, if you read Acts 17, you'll find that they had an altar to the unknown God, you know, in case we missed one. You know, and Paul uses that as an object lesson because I'm going to tell you, there is an unknown God to you. You don't know about him. And he's actually the only real true God that there is. And he used that to launch into teaching them about, about uh, the gospel. All right, so there you find it. And the only other time you find it in the New Testament is in the book of Revelation. It's referring to the altar of incense in heaven and you know, and things like that. So what does that mean? Well, it means that the altar of sacrifice, once Jesus died on the cross, was no longer needed because he's the final sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God. So technically, I've said all that to say this. We don't have altars today. I mean, literal altars. Because we don't have to offer sacrifice because that's what that means. What that means is that Jesus and what he did on the cross is our altar. Now, we still talk about having altars, though. But you got to understand, when we're talking about having altars in the church, we're talking about a special place to pray. We use that symbolic meaning of that, of a meeting place between God and sinners. And the only reason we can is because the cross is our altar. Now, some people refer to benches that they have up front. You've seen that in churches that have benches up front, like little, little bench things, and you kneel and pray there, and we call that the altar. Well, it's actually not an altar because I never saw anybody sacrifice anything on them, you know, like blood sacrifice. Uh, but, but what it is, what it is, is a prayer bench. But we call it that. And we call it that because we're using the symbolism of this is a place of a special place of prayer. This is a place of gathering to have fellowship with God. So we use the symbolic meaning of it there, right? And um, and so yeah, sometimes we talk about leaving things at the altar, right? That means when you pray about it, don't take it back with you. There was a lady one time, preacher preached on gossip, and she came down and she said, Pastor, I need to pray, and I feel like. This is how she said it. She said, I feel like I've got to leave, I need to leave my tongue on the altar uh, because I have a problem with gossiping. And he said, ma'am, it's 14 feet long. Let's do the best we can. <laughs> anyway. So it's, a, it's, it's not a magic place. Um, don't get the idea. A lot of times we give people an opportunity to respond and pray at the end of the service. It's a very powerful time. But don't, don't confuse that with the idea that merely walking forward at a church service is what saves you. There's no work that you do that saves you. It's you trusting in what Jesus has already done that saves you. 
Now, it may come to a point as the Holy Spirit has moved in your heart, as we've worshipped together, as the Word has been preached, and the Spirit is moving in you, that that is like the best time for you to respond. And we're always going to try to give an opportunity to respond, and we can pray together. And if you resist that, it might be that the the enemy will steal that, that holy seed of the Word off of your heart, and you'll get hardened. So you need to respond to God, and we'll give you freedom to do that. And so that's true. And don't also think that if I just go to the altar and pray about it, I used to think this when I was a kid, that and God just magically take care of it. I want to tell you, it's not a magic place. I don't say magic prayers. What happens is, is that you get burdened enough and you get convicted that you need to pray. And you just said, you know, I'm going to pray. I need people to pray with me. And it may be something you want to share so we can help and we can encourage and we can hold each other accountable. Or it may be something just between you and God. But we know you have something. So I'm going to keep praying. So when you come and you decide, yes, Lord, I need to pray about this. I need to surrender something to you. Or I need to let you do something in my life. And you feel compelled that you want to come and pray. I can't just say a magic prayer to make that struggle go away or to make that answer appear, but we are going to pray. And what happens is it's kind of like the beginning of a commitment that you're going to continue to pray and you're going to keep seeking God. You've made a decision to step out for God. You've made a decision to surrender for God. And you've got brothers and sisters praying for you. And some powerful things begin to happen at that moment. See? I mean, don't get the idea. I say a magic prayer and your prayers are gone. Can't do that. But what can happen is you can pray and you can start giving God full access in areas maybe where he didn't have it. And from that moment on, you begin to walk and grow and grow. He will grow and walk with you through and out of that problem. Yeah. So it's very important, our praying together. So we ought to have, we ought to have the church place to pray, right? The church, we're going to call it altar, right? And it should alter our lives as we pray. So we have, we didn't put furniture here to block this. As I always say, we got these steps. You can get however, we got notches here. You can get however low you need to get all the way down to the floor, right? It's a great place to gather and pray. All right? So the church ought to have that. I mean, in the seats, up front, in the classrooms, anywhere. We are praying together. We've got to do more real praying together. I love it when someone comes and is moved to pray and, and a guy comes up and you have several guys that do feel like I, I want to surround them in prayer, right? And we're getting in there with you. And we symbolically show you how that our hearts are one with you by placing our hands on each other many times. And as women do that as well. And there's times that I have needed prayer, but I was too proud to act, ask for prayer. I need it. Some things God's going to do in my life as I pray and as I have other people pray with me. It's scriptural. I never forget one time, don't just do this all willy-nilly or anything. This is a moment that God did. But I remember one time, I was particular, and I'm always praying while we're worshiping. I was feeling like, I can't do this today, Lord. I'm so unworthy, and the enemy was attacking me in my mind, in my heart. And as we were praying, I think subconsciously, I may have stepped forward a little bit, and somebody saw it, but, but God did put it on someone's heart. And two or three guys come up. Next thing I know, they had their hands on my shoulder, and they were praying for God to strengthen me and help me, even in my weakness. I needed that so bad. Why, hadn't, why didn't I ask for it? Why didn't, I mean, we're here as a family of brothers and sisters. Why didn't I say, hey, guys, I need, can you? Why didn't I say something before we got in here? Why didn't somebody come pray with me? I mean, we ought to have that freedom, right? We need to have the church altar, right? And we need to have the family altar. We need to have the family altar. What do I mean by that? That means that there ought to be times as families we pray together at home. It shouldn't be something that your family only does at church. And if it seems awkward at first, I pray that the time could come that it gets to where it's natural. Like, how do I pray? Just talk to God, just like you're talking to me. You don't have to say every word right. God knows your heart anyway. 
But he likes to hear your voice. Your voice is like no one else's. Do you know that? Do you know that? They teach us that every voice has got unique sound waves, and I guess they can digitize those now. And they can, you know, if somebody can, you ever heard people can imitate other people's voices? Do like an amazing job. You wouldn't know the difference. But yet, when they analyze them, they can tell, you know. They can tell. Because you've got your own voice. So basically, you know what? If you don't, there's nobody can praise God for you. He wants to hear your voice. Yeah, he does. Now, he's still going to be as glorious and as powerful and awesome, even if you don't, because it's not so much he needs you, you need him. And so, God wants to hear from you. And if I can explain part of my problem in hearing Clarissa's voice sometimes, that's why I, I use that technology, because sometimes she says, I told you. And I, 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 did he husbands have that, I have that problem? Anybody? Okay, let me just say this. Wives, do any of your men have that problem of, of like, I told you, and, and, and he looks at you and he says, I, I, you didn't tell me. Well, sweetheart, he honest, I, sometimes when I say it, I honestly mean that. I didn't hear it. But I don't mean that I don't think she actually said it. And then I finally figured out, with the help of, of you know, science and technology, what happens. I said, you know, like we have these receptors in our eardrums and they hear, you know, and, and receive all these sound waves and then it translates into your brain, you know, into your, your nerves, goes to your brain, all that stuff. I said, I think my receptors that are within the range of where your voice, your voice waves are has been worn slick, you know, and, and I'm just not, I don't, no, that's actually not true. I know, but, but we kind of do that sometimes. And you know what, we, we just don't want to hear. But anyway, what I'm saying is, is you're unique. God wants to hear your voice. He wants to hear you vo- your voice as you worship him and as you pray him, pray to him. So the finished work of Christ is our altar. We have the altar at home. We have the altar at church. And you need to have a daily altar, a place where you are meeting with God daily. You, I mean, your life is an altar now. Did you know that? In Hebrews 13, 10, he says, we now have. So basically, there's no altar in the New Testament, but yet the writer says, we have an altar from which those who serve in the tabernacle have no right to eat. There still is, and he's using it symbolically because he goes on to talk about, because many times the priest after the sacrifice that some of the leftover meat, that's what they had for food, except on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, they took the leftover sacrifice after they sprinkled the blood in the Holy of Holies. They took it outside the camp and it was burned on the Day of Atonement. And if you read that chapter in 13, that's what he's paralleling there, that likewise Jesus went outside the camp, outside Jerusalem, and was sacrificed there. So basically what he's saying is, is that Christ is our altar. And because Christ is our altar, that our life is an altar. Our life is an altar. Here's what it is. What Jesus did for us is the altar where sinners can meet with a holy God. That's it. That's what we're talking about. Symbolically using that word, what Jesus did. Now, sometimes I'll say the cross. Sometimes I'll refer to the blood. But please understand this. It's all the above. It's all the above. All the blood. All the above. Okay? The cross wouldn't mean anything if he hadn't died on it. And the blood wouldn't mean anything because he could have bled and not died. It's all involved in the fact that he paid the wages of sin for all of us, death. That he died on the cross. That he poured out his blood 
as that visible blood sacrifice. That was it. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that is the sacrifice of all sacrifices that covers all of the Old Testament sacrifice. This is the altar of your life. It's what Jesus did for you where he paid the price for your sins. Now, my whole life can be an altar. I don't have to just come here. I can take it with me everywhere I go. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You're not your own. So the, the, tur- the church, the house of God actually uh, is us. He dwells in us. You don't have to wait till Sunday to bring it to the altar. You take the altar with you because the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. And so the sacrifice for sin was once and all completed in Christ. And as we come to that altar and as we receive him, his power enters in us to alter our lives and change us. This is what he wants to do. Our lives now, uh, as we are giving our life to him, as a life sacrificed to him because he sacrificed his life to save us. And so he inhabits your praise. And here's the thing. If we had the altar in the home, that means the meeting place of worship, and we're actually worshiping individually, and we're worshiping at home. If there were more family altars, you know what? You know what? You've heard this before, I'm sure. If there were more family altars, there would be less family altercations. Huh? Yeah? There would be. There would be. So here's, hey, family that prays together stays together. Yeah. All right, so wrap it up. You ready? There's a problem with the altar, though. Romans 12, 1, he says to present your body as a living sacrifice, kind of altar imagery again. As we've said before, quoting Warren Wiersbe, the problem with the living sacrifice, it keeps trying to crawl off the altar. The problem, though, is when you allow sin to creep into your life, you're going to have difficulty meeting with God. That's what will happen. You'll begin, you'll, you'll fail to meet with the Lord when you know there's sin. Because you know when I come to in his presence, he's going to begin to convict me. He's going to say, because I love you and I want you close to me, I've got to point out something that you need to deal with. Because it's separating our fellowship. And because we already know you've experienced it before, God's going to convict us. We just want to stay away. That's one reason why you don't want to pray. That's why you don't want to get really open before God. That's why you don't really want to maybe worship here. It's because you know that he wants what's best for you. And it may be that, I know this is going to hurt, but if you're going to get closer and stronger, I've got, I've got to expose this to your heart. And we resist that. Uh, Abraham, if you read in chapter 12, after God called him, and he goes into this area where God had sent him, there was a famine. And Abraham, you never find God telling him to do it. He decides he's got to rescue himself, and he goes down to Egypt. And while he's down there, all of a sudden, Pharaoh gets to going, wow, at, uh, at his wife, Sarah. So he lies about Sarah, says it's his sister. Well, kind of a half lie. Anyway, complicated story. Um, But anyway, Pharaoh tries to take her. He almost lost Sarah through whom God said he was going to have a son. And it's through that son on down the line that all nations would be blessed. It was that deliverer was going to come. That promise. It's still connected to that promise in the garden. You don't find Abraham building an altar while he was in Egypt. God had to rescue him and get Sarah back for him. And then as he got out of Egypt, when he came back where he's supposed to be, we find him building an altar again. 
But that was the same problem we face when we know we're out of God's will and we got sin in our life. We will try to avoid the altar. And what God wants us to do is to come and just completely humble ourselves before Him, confess our sin before Him, trusting in what Jesus did for us to cover that sin. And I don't know what I'm... How am I going to overcome this? Just say, I know how I'm going to overcome it, by trusting Him. And it's a daily walk. He will walk you through it and walk you past it. Amen? If you'll trust him. So here's the thing. Either we need to learn as we grow to avoid the presence of sin in our life or else we will avoid the presence of God in our life. That's how it works. So in conclusion, here's what worship does. As we worship God, God may seem far off, but as you worship him, it closes the perceived distance between you and God. Do you have a long distance relationship with God? That's not the way it's supposed to be. If God seems like he's a long way off, one reason could be you're just not truly worshiping him. If he doesn't just seem real to you, what you've got to do is, the word worship literally means to just bow before him. To open up your heart. As we show his worth, surrender. It's a big part of it. And as we come to him and, that's, and we're meeting with him and our life becomes an altar of worship to God, Our lives will be altered and changed as well. Let's pray.